0: Welcome to this holiday edition of the 6 p.m. local news, pre-recorded from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Sholly Pittman, News Director at WORT. Tonight commences our series of specials as we bear down on the holidays and a new year. Our dozens of volunteer producers, reporters, contributors, writers, and engineers are taking this time of year to spend time with family and reflect on the year that was. We'll be coming to you all next week with a series of specials. We'll have year in reviews on big issues facing Madison, a remembrance of notable people we lost this year, stories from the city decades ago, and much more. Tonight, our theme for a year in review show is arts and culture. Today is the winter solstice, midwinter, the shortest day, the longest night, And of course, if you head over to Ulbrich Park in the next hour or two yet, you'll still find the neighborhood's annual winter gathering with drumming, giant puppets, and a bonfire. If you're so inclined, you can write down your thoughts from the year that was and throw them into the bonfire to ascend into smoke. But I want to take you back to the summer solstice this year, in June, a day when the city erupted into a cacophony on the longest day of the year. That's when WORT reporter Kiwon Lim was one of several we sent out into the city. She traveled down to the east side, down to Hana John Taylor's Cafe Coda, which welcomed artist John Himmelfarb and his musical trucks.
1: The sun was already at its peak in the sky at noon when I arrived at Cafe Coda. Today was the summer solstice, and there's no better way to celebrate the longest day of the year than with a community jam session the main attraction were two interactive musical trucks, which drew a lot of attention from passersby. I asked the creator of these trucks, John Himmelfarb, the owner of Cafe Coda, Hana John Taylor, and some guests what this installation meant for the Madison community.
2: Yeah, John Himmelfarb. The trucks were originally created as visual art, strictly, but in the process of making them, I realized banging all the pieces around, putting them together, that there were very sonic properties. A lot of the shapes I was using were old fuel oil tanks or tractor fuel tanks, uh, uh, 50-gallon drums, 20-gallon drums, etc. a lot of metal things from salvage yards. And I chose them for their shapes uh, and their sizes and their colors. But they all had they had a very drum-like quality. It wasn't why I selected them, but that just the way that particular sculpture was going uh, first, I look for a truck that has sculptural properties, so something that, that that I want to work with It can't just be any old truck, but they're gorgeous sculptural things in themselves. So then as an artist, I want something that I can respond to as a shape and uh, and then my composition kind of revolves around how can I incorporate that shape into something that works as a whole Then I started asking around looking for musicians or composers that might want to work with me how it ended up uh, finding the right people well i i love having people enjoy my art some people don't respond to visual art so much but they respond to music so there are people that enjoy these trucks for their musical capabilities or and so they enjoy it in a whole different way so it just gives me enormous pleasure to seeing people uh, having a great time with them and enjoying the sculpture. I'm not saying that they don't enjoy the way they look as well, but they're enjoying them for, in, another, in another way. That's why uh, we, artists make, make stuff is to share it, share it with other people and hopefully once in a while we get to see them actually enjoying it. Often it's just hanging on a wall in a gallery or museum or a home and you don't ever see anybody's reaction to it. You kind of hope people are enjoying it but here I can stand there and see the smiles on people's faces and that makes me really happy.
3: Hannah John Taylor, when you uh, talk about music that you can never separate a music from its time, and here we are in a time when there is a real urgency for joy in the world. Well, this is the community that I've lived in for the past 30 years and my notion is wherever you are, you need to make that place the best place that it can be for everyone. Uh, including yourself. And so, uh, yeah, you know, if, I, I imagine if I didn't have the, this opportunity, which has been, you know, due to sharing the vision with a lot of real caring and cool people in this community, that I'd probably have left by now. I think that's, you know, kind of like a responsibility. If you are a member of the community, that's kind of like what you do. Well, I think anytime people can come together and, uh, and, and make music, you know, regardless of what, what level they are on, you know, it, it brings a, a sense of community and makes us realize that we have more in common than we have in conflict. And it seems like that's something that we need to reiterate in every way that we can uh, as much as possible.
4: Winona, I think this whole day, all day long music, Just everywhere you go, just just people vibing and and, and playing music and singing. So yeah, this is a great event. Uh, I hope it continues. And uh, I'm looking forward to just going through the day, finding really cool new music to hear and old music and all kinds of music and all kinds of people playing it. So I think it's a great, great, great idea. To hear all the different musical sounds that the truck makes each, each part of it makes a different sound. And then, and then you can hear the other people playing and you can rip off that. They can hear you playing and they rip off you for a while. And then there's Hana out there with all the, the horns blending in. So uh, it's just a, that, I've never seen anything like that, those trucks. So that was really inventive and really creative. How oh, he put that together—it's so great. Really, really enjoyed that. All we're playing together. We eventually begin to make a, a sound that kind of sounds like a, you're together, you know. And that's it. You start off in your own little silo, but then you pick up from the other sounds that the other musicians are, are making. And then all of a sudden, you're kind of on the same wavelength for a little bit and then you improvise off into something else. And then you come back together again, and then other people come, and then you start working with them for a
0: while. And
4: uh, then, so it's, 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 very, it's very good
0: for creating harmony. It's Serena Himmelfarb. These are my father's trucks. My father is John Himmelfarb. I, I love it, like it's, it's so thrilling to see people enjoying these pieces in new ways and just kind of discovering what they can do. Yeah, my my dad's climbed right up on top of them and banging away so yeah it's really delightful but i really love these kinds of community gatherings where everyone is made to feel welcome in making music together i think i like being able to sort of disappear in the crowd and enjoy i mean i don't think people know that i'm his kid so i get to just be free out there i have this warm, fond feeling whenever I see his work in the world, but also have this sense of home when I see his work out in the world.
1: For WORT
0: News, I'm Hewan Lim. You're listening to the WORT Local News. If you're just tuning in, tonight's program is a pre-recorded special as our volunteers celebrate the holidays. Tonight's episode, a year-in-review of arts and culture moments from 2023. We welcomed dozens of new reporters into the newsroom this year, and the following is the first pitch we got from WORT reporter Gigi Royko Maurer. The pitch? Coverage of the American Players Theater, which received commendation and praise this year for their performance of a classic, Romeo and Juliet. The Cap Times called it remarkable and high-energy, Isthmus Newspaper called it an exquisitely beautiful production. The show, of course, offered a new commentary on the play's motif of communication. It was performed in both spoken English and American Sign. Now, Roiko Maurer saw these performances many times while working as a house staff member during the APT season. And in October, as the show was winding down, she sat down with the show's Romeo, performed by Joshua Castile, and interpreter Caden Marshall to talk about Joshua's personal experience of being deaf in theater, the beauty of Romeo and Juliet, and how he got started in the industry.
1: So, first question, what inspired you to pursue a career in the arts?
5: Um, My mother bought a shower curtain. Hmm? Um, and I know this feels like it's going off on a tangent, but I promise it's not. Um, she bought a shower curtain. And the first time she bought the shower curtain, it was the one with the slit in the middle. So it could like, be like theatrical curtains. And so I um, would poke my head out and I would like perform different characters to the mirror, which was directly across from the shower. And so I kept doing that. And my mom was like, stop, you're hogging up the bathroom. So then she put me in something called community theater. And so then after then, it was like an addiction that I can't drop. So that's where it is. That's where it came from.
1: It's a very wonderful story. It's a very interesting story. Next question, could you tell me if you remember uh, your first experience performing in theater?
5: Absolutely. Um, I auditioned. I watched this cartoon called Charlotte's Web, and I auditioned with the Templeton song, which is like the rat. And so I went in and auditioned it, and I'm like, no, you're just so cute. We love your little deaf accent. Can you be Wilbur? And I was like, sure. So I played Wilbur for the second act. And um, it was honestly amazing. It was great. Uh, It was like a community theater, 50 seats, and we did it for the summer. And ever since then, I just really appreciated it. I really loved this, like, camaraderie i love like the storytelling i love the character work it was really fun yeah what was your first show my
1: first show i was in children's theater of madison and i did a summer camp and we put on james and the giant peach
5: we ate a peach
1: no (laughs) i was one of the police officers that catches spiker and sponge the evil aunts and I had a little police dance number. Oh, yeah. I it, was amazing. it was so amazing. We wore pearls and Pearl? we did. Police officers? Yeah. It was very fun. I enjoyed it a lot. I think I didn't actually sing an entire note for the whole musical, I just mouthed it.
5: Work. Yeah. Work. I want to lemonade myself sometimes too when music.
1: And that's okay. And that's okay. We have to do what we have to do. Oh, right. Right. Leading on, sort of, to the experience at APT in the beginning, obviously, there are cast members in Romeo and Juliet who do not know sign or did not know sign before the show. Do you feel like the process of learning sign for the show brought an extra emotional component and connection into the cast?
5: Did you see the show? Okay, like what did you get from the outside, if you don't mind me asking?
1: For me, it felt like there are some plays that feel like it's everyone's personal performance being put into one show and it's everyone's singular work being put into one show. This felt like everyone was completely working together, like seeing the perfect team exercise be executed and everyone knew what to do and it was very fluid, which told me that you guys... We're not only performing for us, but you were definitely performing for each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like a showcase of you all showing your talents that you've developed for each other throughout this show. But I don't want to put words into no, I mean, your I mean, mouth, so tell me, because I'm interviewing you. You are.
5: You are. So I, I just wanted to ask you because I don't really get to ask people what they think and what they saw. And I think you're hitting on some really interesting points because I think that. We, um, When we get comfortable, I think we get into a rut. Not, not a rut, but we get into a routine. And we're just like, I know what I'm doing. This is my thing. And I think that coming into the space with people who don't know sign language, it allows this new culture to bring us together. You know, and you really have to trust each other. Like, I had to trust Colleen Manton, Jimmy DeVita, Gavin Lawrence. I had to trust them to give me insights into what Romeo was. I have to be open. And I, I do that. Like if you've watched my Hunchback videos, you can see me and my voice actor are very much connected. And that's something I do is I go in the process and I go, you're voicing for me. So it's not just my choices. If you wanna try something, I'm the, you're, you're helping me portray this character. So you are amplifying the choices that I'm making But I can't in my own human instinct be like, only my choices, you know, like you're here with me. So if you have something you want to try, tell me. And so I create this space of collaboration. And on the first day of this process, I knew like we were in a huge company of people who are used to this process, who know what they're doing and me coming in puts them out of their place. And I think that that's a scary place to be. And and so I remember early on, I was like, don't just use the interpreters, gesture, use your phone to type. You will not offend us. We're going to laugh. It's going to be charades. And I think that kind of just broke the ice. And I think having so many new elements brings a cast together. And it doesn't have to be trauma bonding. It could be like culture bonding. It could be like, you know, developing a show with things that we don't know about and just exploring what does it mean when you have a Jeff Romeo. And just reminding people that it's just theater. Like it doesn't have to be this personal. And so I think throughout the process, we've really grown to love each other and stand in for each other and they gave me ideas for the character i gave them ways of performing romeo that was different than what's classically done so i think now there's this mutual admiration for each other's work there's this like respect for the space that we've created for each other and i think when we go out there we know the story we've been building for a month and a half and now we're excited to share that with audiences where it's like but doing a show, I'm playing this character, you know, and it's just a different vibe. And I, I'm really excited that this happened and I'm looking forward to seeing how APT culture changes because I do think there is a place for disability. I do think that there is characters that are disabled and it feels awkward, but when you put them in the role, the show sh- shines, you know, it's like Tennessee Williams' Glass Menagerie, they put a woman in a wheelchair in that role, and people were so uncomfortable because it was like, "Why is the mom's being so mean and patronized? That's the play. That's what it is, you know. So I think it's great. The whole thing's gonna be
1: amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. And kind of moving on, have you noticed differences between deaf audience members and hearing audience members with? post-show discussions, Q&As, reactions to the show? Have you noticed any significant differences in that? Yeah,
5: I think, I think for hearing audiences, there's a little bit of like a, whoa, oh, this made sense. And for deaf audiences, there's been a lot of like, Shakespeare's really that dirty? It's like, yeah, there's a lot of dirty jokes. Like, like, oh, wow, didn't know. And also representation. They're just so excited that there's this deaf lead character who's desired and seen as someone who's sexual. And that's something that a lot of disabled people don't necessarily get to see in themselves is um, being a desired person, sexually, emotionally. It's most of the time the funny side character or the best friend or the pity party. And so that has been an interesting thing. There's been a lot of discussion about the translation work of language play. I'm very proud of that, of the work that we've created and to have the speech intense text coach how they're able to tell us where the language is playing has, has literally changed some of my translations to be more wordplay, playing, concept play, even more than it was the first time. And so having that resource really helped me to develop work in such a way that is more impressive than most theater we see in the country with sign language because we don't have that support in the room. We're most of the time making our own productions or we are doing a smaller theater that doesn't have the ability to provide that. So having this platform here at APT really has allowed the deaf audience to see Better quality work, I think, and I think hearing audiences were just very fascinated by this, that the fact that deaf people have a perspective, and experience that's different, you know. I think people look at deafness and think there's a lacking of an experience, there's a lacking of something, rather than there's a whole other, you know, like I don't sit here going, I can't hear. I sit here going, that person's face is really weird. They're really frustrated today. So I'm looking at way different things than people are and feeling differently about things than people are, um, and that's okay. I think that's just something that the show brought to light, and a lot of people have come up and been like, I want to see more I'm curious I did not know that this was what deaf culture is and it's not it's a part of it but you know I am excited to see what other shows they do and what elements of the culture and language we can bring to the stage
1: for sure and watching Romeo and Juliet it seems like almost the way that Italian is used in opera and people go to the opera and maybe they don't necessarily understand Italian but the way that the language is used portrays such a deeper level of emotion and adds a different aspect. And I'm wondering if you ever think that ASL could be used in productions, even by hearing people, just because this show needs that deeper level of emotion, we need to put our voices and our bodies into portraying this. Do you ever think that that could be sort of a next step with popularizing ASL in theater?
5: um i think you're bringing up something that i think is really uh exciting to me as uh, an artist um but also terrifying to a deaf community um i think you're right i think asl has a language and a structure that allows us to better curate our expression because there's parameters in the language that allow us to distinguish space concept through space and time and my theater teacher always told the actors in my class like If you go take ASL classes, I will give you bonus points because it's literally telling you how to communicate things with your body, you know? And so I'm like, this is great. I love this idea. On the flip side, the deaf community is like, we don't get opportunities. And so a lot of deaf people are like, we are the masters of this craft. And I think it's easy for us to feel like, oh, and you already want to take that away from us. You know, you already want to give it to somebody else. And then we'll just go back to being in the dark again. And... I think the other part of that is you have to get into the mainstream. It's like it loses a little bit of its sparkle when it does that, but it becomes more accepted. It's like Drag Race. When it first started, it was so edgy and so sparkly. And then now it's like more common, more right, right, stri- widely accepted and mainstream. And I, I think that's great. I think it's amazing. It, there just come this sense of like appropriation and a little sense of uh, for spectacle and, you know, attention and not... Truly giving access to the show, truly bringing an experience to the show. So I think there is a way to do that. And I think as long as we keep including deaf performers in the space, I think the work will shine. I think when we start to take it away and it goes into like people who don't really know the language and hearing people use it, I think it, it's going to continue to gain a different meaning and a different look. But I think the original intent, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get lost. And um, I worry about that. But I do encourage people to learn sign. I do encourage people to consider bringing in people into the space.
0: That was WORT reporter Gigi Royko in conversation with Joshua Castile, who played the part of Romeo this summer in the American Players Theater unique production of Romeo and Juliet. You're listening to the local news, arts and culture, year in review on WORT. So far, we've had musical trucks. We've had Shakespeare. Now on to photography. WORT contributor, Jennifer Fields, is an art historian who focuses on material culture. She produces the Radio Chipstone series for WART, which airs every other Thursday. The project is hosted by the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison and funded by the Chipstone Foundation. And in a segment produced for the news in August, Jennifer takes us on a day trip with art historian, Jennifer Hawkins. Hawkins wanted to have a photo taken at the Wisconsin State Historical Site the H.H. Bennett Photography Studio and Museum. Now instead of drinking her water and minding her business, Jennifer asks a million questions to Jennifer and to Dave Rambow, the director of the museum and the photographer.
6: If you wanted a picture done, there was no such thing as uh, personal cameras unless you knew a photographer. So uh, you had to make an appointment and come in and it was very solemn and very proper. So for that reason, people weren't just casual and funny and happy. It was very solemn and very serious. You rarely see anybody smile unless they don't know any better, like a kid or, you know, something like that. So So Jen, you're a modern woman.
7: You've taken (laughs) selfies. Why is it important for you to have this photograph using this antiquated? way of capturing your lovely image
8: i think um when i found out that this museum also was an operating studio doing tintype uh, portraits i was so excited because it's i don't know it's history right but also just um when i walked in and saw all the natural light that illuminated the studio. Of course it was natural light, right? They didn't have electric lights. And the, um, the actual cameras that they used, the, um, everything, it was just, it's more than just having a photo snapped. It's like a whole experience and you get to also take a part of history home with you. That's very cool. I was going to say, you can pick up a rock and do the same thing, but I won't be
7: facetious. Okay, so
8: now walk me through the
7: process. Jen, you can tell me to stop if you want me to stop okay. if it's distracting you. So now, princess, are you queen or princess Jennifer?
8: I, uh, I realized when I was putting this together in, in front of the mirror that it's kind of a combination of like Greek goddess and princess, and then I have my big, bold glasses frames, which I'm going to keep on because they're part of who I am. And I was like, I kind of, I'm kind of digging that like Greek goddess slash princess. Serene Highness.
7: Serene Serene Highness, Highness Highness. career woman.
8: That's right. Who needs
7: to see because she's ruling stuff.
8: Exactly. (laughs) I can't walk around all nearsighted, Everything's fuzzy. I got,
7: I got, I got people to boss around. (laughs) So now do you get to pick your
8: backdrop? Yes. And so there are uh four six six of them yes and i got to look at all of them there's a book they have at the desk and you can see them all the one that's up right now is kind of a a pinky blue landscape with a, a blue sky behind it but it will all be of course in black and white
6: the black and white ones we did the best we can using some of his original pictures that were done here to replicate the feeling of those and um, we had a, a painter actually hand paint those.
7: Okay, so princess, so now what do we do? So now I'm not here, so we just walk her through the normal thing.
6: All
8: right. I do like this this uh, chair. It has a throne vibe.
4: Mm-hmm. And I,
6: yeah, the arms you can. Have you, you know, one hand up? Mm-hmm. You don't have a wand, but no, I don't. I have like, a wand. I like the idea of your hand mm-hmm. next to you, if, if that works. Unfortunately, I have a
8: cut on this hand, oh. and then I have a tattoo on this hand that I don't really want in the picture. Not that I don't
6: want it. The good news is, those tattoos are blue. Oh. So They're, they'll be the film light. that we make. It loves those lower bands of of spectrum of light. So blue will be white or clear, as far as you know. All right. Magic. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll yeah. just in red, orange, yellow, those will look black or dark. So a lot of these images of these people that you look at from history, they're always wearing dreary colors, gray and black. And no, that's probably rust color and red. Mm-hmm. You know, very bright, very vibrant. Now, what I will be using today, it will start with this anyway, is a heavy camera, but this is a a light use studio camera. Um, It's a box with a lens on one end. To take the image, there's no button to push. You take the lens cap off and count the number of seconds that kind of you have guessed how long it takes. Put that back on and then the film in the back will register and you'll develop it in this dark kind of closet. If you want to take a look in here, through this, look at this screen like you're looking at a monitor. Um, I'm gonna, I'll start. I'll get this kind of in focus a little bit and then we'll go from there. Oh, there she is. (gasps) So
7: She's standing on her head. Yeah,
6: isn't that something? So I'm going to zoom in a little more, and I probably will lower this. See, that's my zoom lens. You have to move the whole camera forward and backwards. That's close as you can get. Now, when I show this to kids, they're very disappointed because the front is the lens, the back is a viewing screen. Indoors, <gasps> there's a lot of nothing. It's just a black box. So the camera really doesn't do anything except focus the light to the where the film is, that's all it does. Sometimes that angers me when people see that what you've done and they say, your camera does really good work, you know. camera didn't <sighs> <it? You say. laughs> All right, well, I'm gonna zoom a little.
7: This is the creepiest thing. If this, if, if I walked in your house and somebody was doing this, I would immediately <laughs> run up to him <laughs> and kick him over and grab you and we would leave. It's really sort of, it's, it's really just a visual testament to how far photography has come because you have someone... Clo- this would not be okay
4: mm-hmm.
7: anywhere outside it. of here. Well, you have this man really? under a cloak with a giant box that's posted at you <laughs> that looks like it could shoot things out of.
6: Now imagine coming into this room and you'd never had your picture taken before. You didn't know what this was. As far as you know... This might, like you said, spray something out that might hurt. And um, so a lot of these early pictures, some of the, especially children, have this kind of scared look on their
7: face. Well, for good reason. Yeah. I mean, you're a perfectly nice man, Dave, but don't, I'm, you <laughs> know, I know the, you. the urge to kick you over.
6: But I don't know you.
7: And you've got <laughs> this this giant thing pointed very closely to my friend.
6: Yep. All right, I'm going to go back into this Dark room, it's, it's really just a closet. I call it a dark room.
7: It's Dave, it's,
6: it's a dark room. Okay, it's a dark yeah. room. <laughs> and um, I'm gonna puddle around, pour some chemicals on a plate. Then it has to sit in a bath of silver nitrate and water for three minutes to coat and become what we call an emulsion on the front of that piece of metal. We can also do it on glass, but today, tintype is metal. And um, after three minutes, it can go into a special holder that's light tight, and then that can safely be brought through this lighted area and put in the back of the camera. Um, if we just opened, brought the plate in, it would turn black, just and be wrecked, you know. Um, one shot will take about 20 to 30 minutes to do. So that's why it's, everything has to be so precise and slow so you get a good image on this one time if you don't either because she moves or i do something wrong with the chemicals you got to start over so then she but you won't know the results until right when after we do this 10 second exposure i'll come back in here and i'll pour some of that vinegar smelling developer across this plate it looks kind of bluish cloudy blue and that will pour over there and I'll be able to see this image kind of rise up and it'll look like a negative ah okay and um, then I will put this in a pan and bring it out to you and pour this fixer on it and it will s- turn from that negative bluish thing into black and white as we saw her except everything's backwards perfect so, so it's one o'clock right now so we're we're starting and I um, the sitter has to be still today about 10 seconds, maybe a little longer, but we'll say 10. But they are allowed to blink as normal. And of course, don't stop breathing, you know, keep breathing as normal. Um, other than that, any movement will be a blur. So we'll remove the screen. In its place, we'll put this box with the negative in it. And this the negative is the same distance from this lens as the screen. So, in theory, if that was in focus, this will be as well. So it's pretty easy. Remove this, which will expose that negative to the front. And then when I take the lens cap off, the light will stream in a straight line in and hit that light sensitive area. Since it's in focus, the light will make a pattern from where she her face into that. I know, it's just a simple light, but it it's almost like magic if you'd never seen this especially. Okay, okay you ready? Right. Chin up, good. Mm-hmm. Okay, hold that, here we go. I'll count backwards from ten. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Five. Four, three, two, one, and clear. Yeah. There's so a little shading, but I. I'm going to go in there and I'll bring, after I pour the developer, I'll bring everything right back here to this stool and then we'll be able to see what the final product will be. <laughs> here we are. <gasps> Is that about what you expected? Tell me when you're ready and I'll pour the juice. Ready. Okay. This fixer's a little older, so it might take a little longer, but that blue is gonna go away and we'll start seeing <gasps> the, the real person behind the blue. And I've done this thousands of times and it's just a chemical reaction, but every time you do it, it it seems like a little magic going on, you know.
0: That's WORT contributor Jennifer Fields. Dave Rambow is the director of the State Historical Site, HH Bennett Studio and Museum in the Wisconsin Dells. Jennifer says, "Jennifer Hawkins is a sublime ruler and princess worthy of being memorialized via tin type." Keep it tuned here to the local news. More moments of arts and culture from 2023 are coming up. This year, we launched several new features on the WORT local news. Producer and host Jose Carlos Teixeira is a visual artist, filmmaker, and educator here in Madison. And he's been busy talking with local artists about why and how they do what they do. It's called framing culture. In his first episode that we aired in November, Jose spoke with Meryl Ingram. Here's that episode
9: Framing Culture. Hey, how are you?
10: I'm great. How are you? It's nice to see you, Jose.
9: It's so nice to see you. It's a beautiful sunny morning, a little chill but, you know, quite a beautiful fall day.
10: Yes, it's a beautiful fall day. It's a Wisconsin day. My name is Marille.
9: Ingram. Yes. So welcome to our Framing Culture. And today I have the honor and the pleasure of welcoming Maril Ingram. She is an environmental geographer and an author. So you brought me here. I'm just wondering, what is this about?
10: What would you say? Where are we standing right now?
9: So we are in front of your house, and uh, we are in this piece of land, garden kind of thing. But is it yours or is it already municipal land? What's going on here?
10: It's a street terrace. It's a few feet wide. I'd say maybe 20 feet long. Shouldn't be very complicated, but actually I've spent a lot of time here, Jose, building relationships, losing relationships, thinking about what's going on. So I'd like to introduce you to somebody here that's part of this street terrace right here. Here we are. I'm super happy to introduce you to this new character, this new neighbor of mine, called a London plane tree, but I think we know them as sycamores. They're actually native to Wisconsin, but this is a hybrid, and the reason why they use a hybrid is because it's a little more resistant to something called anthracnose, which afflicts this kind of tree. But basically, this is an awesome urban tree. She's got lots of attributes that make her a a great neighbor, because she can withstand the regular sorts of abuse we heap on our street terraces.
9: That's wonderful to meet your new beloved neighbor here. I actually uh, became acquainted with a beautiful new book by Muriel. It's called Loving Orphaned Space. And so there is a lot about the politics of the space and about invisibility.
10: Yes. When I think about orphaned space, there's two things I think about, but the way I always start is just infrastructure and how the infrastructure that's all around us, that's sustaining us, making it possible to get from here to there, making it possible to turn the lights on, making it possible to have water and not have water when we don't want it. I think a lot about infrastructure and how it supports us and maintains us in so many ways, and also is constantly in a process of kind of organizing us and and shaping our relationships with our world and our environment. And I'm interested in how it shapes it. And I think it's a great starting place to perhaps begin to challenge some of the ways that it shapes those, particularly how it kind of minimizes potential interactions and relationships. And those can go from the very simple just excitement i expressed over my new friend this tree to actually some pretty righteous stuff related to taking over space and having more political say and influence in the spaces all around us so i actually think there's a lot going on in infrastructure
9: what you say is quite interesting muriel because makes me think about how we see think and inhabit space and place and how actually a lot of things go under the radar is as if our eyes and souls were kind of blind to it. You are keen in exploring and diving deeper into all those spaces and spots that actually are unruly. They cannot be, or they will not be legislated or organized, and therefore they become really abandoned. And so why do you think that dystopian relationship exists between us and all these in-between weird invisible spaces?
10: That's a fascinating question. I really think there's a lot going on that's both about control. And of course, on the surface, it makes sense. We want to control our environment so it's predictable for us, right? So we can go about our lives. Also has to do with control and and um, fear over Loss of it. That's great that you are bringing up the unruly and the uncontrolled, Jose, because I think that's a beautiful connection to what I think about as the emotional, psychological, kind of psychic connection that orphaning severs and and by orphaning what I'm really talking about is the ways that infrastructure involves so much policing of our environment so there's the physical policing there's things like the sidewalks we we build the asphalting we put down in order to sort of um, make a, a kind of consistent even sur- surface there's the mowing that we do the pesticide insecticide to minimize disturbing species uh, we have lots of regulations about how wide how tall all of these things do keep us safe but I think we lose a lot in the process of having these kind of standard approaches to things. And as part of that loss, I think, is this kind of psychic not seeing things. There is the rejection of the void. There is the rejection that a street terrace is invisible. And then there is the opportunity for loving, right? which is a psychic and also very physical kind of experience and activity. It's opening up a whole bunch of different worlds all through a street terrace.
9: And it makes me think about this other dimension, which I'm sure, and of course you cover in your book, the cultural dimension to it all and how different cultures, different societies, regions in the world actually deal with space in a formal or informal way in North America, specifically where we are. How do you see this as an obsessive desire for ruling that makes the rest invisible? Because when you go to Latin America, it's a completely different game.
10: No question. You go into different places and different relationships of infrastructure will always sort of help us think about things culturally. And actually, I... I do have to say that when I was thinking about the book, I was reading a lot from people who were writing from cities in other countries, and particularly what you might call sort of southern hemisphere, but large cities with vast informal networks. And I think it was the nature of the informality, which really allowed me to hear people talking about infrastructure as a much more live kind of set of systems. And that helped me think about how, in fact, we Assume our infrastructure is going to work for us, and because it works, we no longer see it. Right? That is uh, Heidegger's tools. That works; you don't, you don't have to think about it. But of course, climate change, other things happen, and we begin to sort of say, "Hey, you know, we're getting, we're flooding. Why is that?" And then infrastructure comes into our consciousness.
9: How, what you are describing, it's sort of the f- the other side of the coin into the things that we reject in ourselves the way we conduct our lives so neatly organized not embracing the void not embracing the messiness how how about that
10: yes i think that the loving part of loving orphan space so we reject the void and then we begin to see and we use all kind we have the opportunity to use all our senses when we see we can smell hear listen read ask questions i do think that many of us don't see things or don't build relationships because we don't want to go through the pain of loss and one of the reasons I'm so excited about this this tree here is because I lost a tree of uh, that I was incredibly fond of
9: by the way your neighborhood is
10: oh this is an east side um, this is the Dunbar sprint no this is the um, sassy neighborhood sorry
9: sassy so, just beautiful just- near Lake Monona Yes. you should visit and explore all these terraces and forgotten places
10: I, I got really fond of my street trees. I had relationships with the squirrels. I really cared about that tree. And then I, the city came and they took it down because a neighbor complained.
9: That was not only a physical, but also an emotional loss.
10: Exactly. And that was before one of our hottest summers on record. It was an incredible shade tree, all gone. Inevitably, when you start peeling back the layers of spaces that are around you, when you start investigating and asking questions, stuff can emerge that isn't comfortable. And um, there are always histories here. And most of the land that we occupy has had some violent histories. And not that long ago, I could look just just up the street, just, just over there where that tree is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I would have seen a mound. I would have seen big, beautiful oaks with spreading branches and underneath a mound and probably the outline of one just over the hill. And I would be standing actually in a cluster of mounds and that were part of this incredible ceremonial tapestry. This this must have been an incredibly joy-filled and awe-filled space.
9: Thanks so much for that insight. It was lovely to be here with you. This is a to-be-continued conversation because your theme and your book is brilliant and fascinating. Thank you.
10: Thank you, Jose. I really appreciated the opportunity to
0: walk on a street terrace with you today. That was WORT feature contributor Jose Carlos Teixeira. His feature is called Framing Culture. You can find all of his episodes and the rest of our reporting online at wortfm.org. You're listening to the WORT local news. We're listening to some of the arts and culture moments we covered this year. Our year, along with our time this hour, is almost up. But before we go, I want to share with you one more interview. This time, our feature contributor is WORT producer Nate Weghiehout. And if you know Nate... You know he likes fishing, which is why, when we met a man who curates fishes for the UW Zoological Museum, we had the perfect reporter for the job.
11: I mean, I have some of these containers are full of, I did a bunch of stuff on hybridization and gar a few years ago, so I have a whole bunch of gar preserved in some of these tubs.
12: John Lyons is not only a collector of jars filled with long-nosed, sharp-toothed fish. His official title sounds like a joke told by old anglers. He serves as the official curator of fishes at the UW Zoological Museum. The UW Zoological Museum is one of five museum collections on the UW-Madison campus, providing hands-on research material for universities across the country. While it is considered a museum, it isn't open to the public, instead sitting in highly organized shelves and cabinets. While most of the bones and animal skins sit on the fourth floor of the Nolan Zoological Building, the fish live in the basement, with shelves and shelves containing around 22,000 jars of different fish. Those fish are watched over and sometimes provided by lions, who is what I would call a fish guy.
11: You know, even before this, I kept fish in aquariums. Mm-hmm. I always liked fish. That's how I got into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also... Um, I mean, I snorkel and scuba dive and observe fish. I, I like to cook and eat fish, so mm-hmm. you name it, I do it.
12: Lyons first got involved with the Zoological Museum in 1979 when he moved to Madison for graduate school. But it wasn't until the 1980s that he took on the role of adjunct curator for the museum's fish collections as part of his role as fisheries research scientist and later manager with the State Department of Natural Resources. Lyons retired from the DNR in 2017 and has continued to curate the fishes at the museum ever since on a part-time basis. Though he says that he is certainly there more than part-time. While most of the museum is made up of bones and skins of various mammals, reptiles, and the like, their collection of fish bones is limited.
11: These are the bones of a carp. Okay. And there's just so many of them. Mm-hmm. And they're so tiny and fragile that it's, if it's a lot of work to do a pelican one of these is like five times as much work, right? and in particular because in higher vertebrates, mammals and birds, most of the bones in the head are fused into a skull. Mm-hmm. In fish, I mean, they have a skull, but the skull is made up of all these separate <laughs> bones, and so when you take it apart, you have all these separate bones to mm-hmm. process and keep straight.
12: No, most of the fish collection exists in jars, floating in formaldehyde and ethanol like you'd see in a science classroom. The fish collection is the only collection at the museum where they are actively adding new specimens regularly. It's a lot quicker and cleaner to pop some fish in a jar than it is to debone and deflesh an animal. Lyons says that they gather fish in a variety of methods, tossing out nets to shocking a body of water to, yes, even throwing in a fishing line. For instance, Lyons is currently studying regional variations on freshwater drums, commonly known as sheep's head found across the entire continent so when he goes to a new state for a vacation or a conference he pulls out his fishing gear and so
11: when i go to certain (laughs) areas for other purposes oh i need a drum from here i'll fish for him because i only need a handful yeah and you know i'll get a local lice i was just in ohio about a month ago and we were fishing to get some stuff out of lake erie so we caught, my wife, I dragged, we we're going fishing for a day and I decided to go to a conference. And so we went fishing and we caught a few drum.
12: But Lyons also has the only living creatures in the museum. Outside of other museum staff and a colony of flesh-eating beetles used to clean the bones of other animals in the museum, Lyons has four tanks of Mexican gudilla fish, a species native to central Mexico, which he has had for around six generations.
11: I'm part of a network of both professionals, as well as hobbyists, Mm -hmm. who keep these fish in a conservation context because um, all of these species are critically endangered and some of them are actually, have disappeared in the wild and Hmm. are only maintained in captivity. They're in a group of fish called gudeids. It's a family of fish. And they don't get much bigger than this. A few of them might get like four or five inches long, but this is a typical size for most of the species. There are four different species here. Overall there's about forty. Okay. And so there's one facility in Mexico in Morelia where where they try to keep everything in one place, you know, in, in one holding mm-hmm. and they have a big active conservation and research program. And then everything else is just kept in a network of hobbyists. A few in Mexico, but mainly in the United States and Europe, mm-hmm. where people just for the love of fish, keep them, mm-hmm. you know, there's no money or anything. And so we've created a little informal group called the Gudia Working Group that has folks in Europe and Mexico and here. And we, you know, kind of get together now and then and we auction off fish to raise money that we give for conservation projects and things like that.
12: Lyons says that he doesn't have any favorite fish in the collection, except maybe the Gudia, but there are plenty that come with an interesting story.
11: All right, so this particular species,
12: Mm-hmm.
11: It's only known from, or historically it was known from two small spots in, in an area just west of Guadalajara, maybe 50 or 100 miles. Okay, right here. Mm-hmm. And I first visited this place, this would be 2000. Okay. And even though they were in one place, they were common. Mm. Lots of them, hundreds. So we brought a few back. Small fish doesn't get much bigger than this. Mm -hmm. Only found it's what they call local endemic, only found in this one area. Mm -hmm. Went back four years later, I think, yeah, 2004. And, you know, at the time that the creek, it was a little creek, but it didn't have any obvious threats to it. There wasn't pollution, there was plenty of water. Went back this time just found, I think, a handful, hmm. and we kept two. The reason being that somehow or other, someone had released the basic, uh, you know, aquarium swordtail oh, into the, yeah. and that sword tail had run amok, oh. and had you know killed the, eliminated probably because it eats the young. It's a much more aggressive species, so mm-hmm. it eats these guys young. So these two fish here last two fish of that species ever observed in the wild huh these two in this jar huh so i was doing a survey up by anago and there was a little stream that had a little private fish farm Mm. that discharged to it we were sampling a stream catching lots of brook trout and then we catch this thing i'm like that's not a brook trout (laughs) it turns out it's an arctic char Oh. And there were, Arctic char are actually a popular aquaculture species.
12: Okay, okay.
11: And so this place, they didn't get in trouble for it, but they didn't have a permit. Mm. They had come mm. out of there, and uh, there was an Arctic char there. So if they said, Oh, we've never released anything in the water, yeah, you did. <laughs> so I've caught an Arctic char once, not in where it's native range, but. Mm-hmm somewhere it's not supposed to be.
12: Lyons lives, breathes, catalogs, catches, and even eats fish. Even though he technically retired 60 years ago, he says that he sticks around at the museum because, well, he likes it.
11: That, that's the simplest reason. I enjoy it. It's good for me. Professionally, I'm even though I'm formally retired from the DNR, I'm still working for the university. I'm still keeping my finger in research and public outreach and things like that. And um, the staff here is great. The staff we have um it's an interesting facility there's all this cool stuff to look at Mm -hmm. i'm still collecting stuff and adding it to the collection so i feel and i've been doing that now for literally 40 years sure so i feel you know a responsibility i want this stuff to be maintained i want it to be well organized and accessible Mm -hmm. and um not that other people don't but they've got 15 other things to do so without me just like the invertebrate stuff sits, yeah, doesn't get really dealt with.
0: That was WORT producer Nate Wegehout on site for the second time at the UW Zoological Museum, which houses around 750,000 animal specimens for scientific research on the UW-Madison campus. Now for regular updates on conditions for live fish in the Madison area, tune in to the WORT News every other Thursday when Nate sits down for a fishing report with Pat Hasberg, owner of DNS Bait and Tackle. This has been a pre-recorded special of the WORT local news. Thanks so much for joining me this evening for these highlights and slices of life that we reported in 2023. And I hope you'll continue to join us next week for more Year in Review episodes. On Monday, WORT producer Faye Parks will look at the year in housing. On Tuesday, she'll take a look at the local year in labor. On Wednesday, contributor Stu Levitan will flash back for headlines from decades past. And on Thursday, contributor David Ahrens will remember the people we lost in 2023. In the new year, on January 1st, feature contributor Greg Nishad will air his special investigation into flooding issues. Meanwhile, thanks to our reporters and contributors we heard tonight. That's hee Lim, Gigi royko Mauer, Jennifer Fields, Jose Carlos Teixeira, and Nate wege If you've been inspired tonight, try your hand at radio storytelling in 2024. We'd love to have you at WORT in the new year. Head online to wortfm.org volunteer. Or just give me a call, 608-321-9586. I'm your host and WORT's News Talk and Public Affairs Director, Shally Pittman. That's it on my end. Stay tuned for a very special episode of The Perpetual Notion Machine from contributor Catherine Garvins. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Have a good night and a good winter solstice.